true story about some of the funny things that kids say. Two little girls were sitting on the front porch of one of their homes, and the parents were just inside the screen door listening in to their conversation. And the first little girl was saying, if you have Jesus come into your heart, you can go to heaven like me and live with him forever. And the other little girl said, well, will my mommy be there too? And her friend said, sure, if she opens up her heart to Jesus too. And then her friend paused and thought for a moment before adding, and if you don't want her to be there, just don't tell her about this. (laughs) I thought that was great. Childhood evangelism. Now, with all due respect to mothers and Hallmark stores everywhere, I don't normally do Mother's Day messages. In fact, I specifically avoid most holiday messages other than, you know, we typically will do one around Christmas time, around Easter, or at Easter, but uh, other than those two days, pretty much whatever section of Scripture we happen to be studying at the time, that's what we study. Paul says in Romans 14, verse 5, one person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observes it for the Lord. And so I don't normally focus in on holidays. I used to. I used to spend most of my uh, ministry life going from one holiday to the next. See, that was easy, at least when you're trying to figure out a sermon and you're not just teaching the Word, but you're, you're trying to meet a need and scratch an itch. Well, then the holidays are great, because every time one comes up, you have a topic that you can deal with. And so I, I don't normally do that. Um, however, today... I want to talk about a couple of mothers because there's a story that's familiar to us. I believe it's appropriate for us. It's appropriate for mothers, but it's also appropriate for fathers, wives, husbands, sons, and daughters, which I think covers pretty much every one of us. I want to draw back a few chapters this morning to a very strange story. It's an odd story, probably an odd pick for a Mother's Day. And it's an odd pick for the Bible, in my opinion. It's 1 Kings chapter 3 beginning in verse 16, where we'll look at two women who are not the model of motherhood you might expect on a day like today. 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 16. Then two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. Can I just stop right there? How many of you who grew up in church and went to Sunday school knew these two women were hookers? And that's often left out of the Sunday school curriculum. I had heard this story over and over and over growing up, and never did I know that the two women who came to Solomon for judgment on a certain issue were were harlots. But that's how the story begins. And one woman said, Oh my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. And it happened on the third day after I gave birth that this woman also gave birth to a child, and we were together. There was no stranger with us in the house, only the two of us in the house. Apparently they were taking some time off. Verse 19. This woman's son died in the night because she lay on it. So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from beside me while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead son in my bosom. And when I rose in the morning to nurse my son, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him carefully in the morning, behold, he was not my son whom I had borne. Well, then the other woman said, No, for the living one is my son, and the dead one is your son. But the first woman said, No, for the dead one is your son, and the living one is my son. Thus they spoke before the king. This would have to be one of those moments in Solomon's reign where he's sitting on his throne, mouth open, just going, You've got to be kidding me. I mean, this is 
uh, in my mind, the most unique argument possibly ever to have happened in history. My son's alive one, yours is the dead son. No, my son's alive one, yours is the dead one. And then the king said in verse 23, The one says, this is my son who is living, and your son is the dead one. And the other says, no, for your son is the dead one, and my son is the living one. You know, Solomon is recapping just to make sure he's really getting what they're saying here. And the king said in verse 24, get me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king. The king said, divide the living child in two, and give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman whose child was the living one spoke to the king, for she was deeply stirred over her son and said, Oh, my lord, give her the living child, and by no means kill him. But the other one said, He shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Then the king said, Give the first woman the living child, and by no means kill him. She is his mother. And when all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had handed down, they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. It's a great story. Of all the examples of wisdom in the scriptures, of Solomon's wisdom, this is the most famous, but again, I believe it's the oddest. It's here because as we have seen so often in the scriptures, God tells it like it is. This is not a book that's been sugar-coated for the religious right. This is a book that tells everything as it happened. It doesn't necessarily honor to say it's a good thing either. In fact, we were going to be talking about uh, 1 Kings chapter 11 this morning. Solomon and his 700 wives and 300 concubines, or, or vice versa, his thousand women. And people will read that. And Joseph Smith, founder of Mormonism, went to that passage to say, See, polygamy is biblical. No, it's not. The Lord doesn't honor that. The Bible's clear about it, but the Bible also tells what happened. It points out the sin choices of men and women very clearly. And this story is no different, just very odd, very strange, but very much the truth. And I want to spend a little time here. We, we kind of breezed by it earlier on a Wednesday night and pointed out a couple of things that just kept rolling. And I've been thinking about the story ever since then. And I want to share some things that I believe the Lord wants us to hear. But let's pray first. Lord Jesus, we sit here with your word open in our laps and our hearts open to your voice. And we ask that you speak truth to us as you always do. And the truth will free us up, Father, maybe from misperceptions we've had in the past. And open our minds wider to understanding your nature. Your compassion, your love, and your mercy in such a way that it will impact us. Father, the theme this morning is obvious. It wasn't a pre-planned theme by any of us. But based on what Larry shared during communion, Father, and, and the songs you sang in worship, and now the, the teaching you have before us, Lord, help us to hear loud and clearly that you love us. And speak now, Holy Spirit, to us in Jesus' name. Amen three characters in this story that stand out the two women two harlots and the king and among the three characters in this cast which is a true morality tale each one expresses an interesting truth we can look one at a time at each of them and learn some things the most honorable obviously is Solomon's his wisdom is amazing and then there are those who, who will say, well, we can also justify honoring the mother who cried out, don't kill the child, give him to the other woman, let the child live. But what of the second woman? Is there even a shred of human decency in her? This is the one who lay on her child, 
then lied about it, and now she wants to keep the other child as her own, is there a shred of human decency, is there a shred of even motherhood in this woman? And I actually heard a pastor make the comment, argue the case, that somewhere deep inside, she must have had a mother's heart. For she did want a child. She wanted the baby. Granted, she was a harlot, a liar, a manipulator. Not the kind of woman that you typically would think of to deserve a card or a bouquet of flowers or a corsage on Mother's Day. But it does appear, at least at the start of the story, however twisted she might be, that this woman did at least want to be a mother. Now I point that out because it would have been easier for her in her line of work just to let bygones be bygones. She rolls over, her child dies, now she has no more responsibility, she can just go back to doing what she did before. Wouldn't it be more difficult to raise a child? Wouldn't it have been easier just to move on, making kind of a pro-self, pro-abortion decision? A lot of women in our country today make that choice. It's easier. I have a job, I have a life, I've got things going on. It is easier just to move on. And so 2.5 million children are aborted every year in our country. But here's something you may not have known. Abortion was very common in Solomon's day too. In fact, because of all the cult prostitution, pregnancy was rampant in the pagan cultures and they would just get pregnant and nine times out of ten there would be a following abortion. And it makes me wonder what do we esteem today and how far have we really come that we are in the same place now that they were 3,000 years ago. Do we make the easy choice? Do we go for the, the quick fix? This woman here has moral, ethical, and spiritual problems, but she does at least appear to want to be a mom. However, the truth comes out as the story goes on, for we see in her, and I'm going to give you three things if you're a note taker to jot down, we see in her the attitude of abortion. The attitude of abortion. In verse 26, at the end of the verse, she says, He shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Literally in the Hebrew, it's just divide. It's a command form of the word. Divide. <clears throat> Cut him up. Make it happen. Can any of you ladies imagine thinking this, much less saying it? He shall be, if he can't be mine, he can't be yours either. As the little child there is, is, is gurgling or whatever... He's neither one of ours. Divide. Cut him up. And I suggest to you that with these two prostitutes, again, probably cult prostitutes, there's already such a wicked lifestyle that they are living in a culture of death. You see, the Bible tells us sin breeds a culture of death. Why is it that so many Americans today can be so pro-abortion because, Jesus says, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. It's a, an increase of wickedness that breeds a culture of death. James 1.15 says, when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. I suggest to you that this is the attitude of abortion. Now, this is a shocking statement, but it's the woman saying, if I'm not keeping the child... No one gets the child. This child's not going to be mine. And I'm too busy or I've got too much going on or it's too much of a, of a, of a difficulty for me. Then this child can't be anybody's. And I know that there are those who would say, spoken like a true dumb male, you just don't understand women, Rick. 
You just don't understand the life and the right to choose. How can you possibly understand you being a man? And I say, I understand completely because I'm a sinner. I do understand. In 1 Kings 8.39, Solomon prays to the Lord, You alone know the hearts of all men. There is no man who does not sin. So as different as we might want to make men and women, especially when it comes to the pro-life, pro-choice argument, the reality is we're all sinners and we all have sinful thoughts and we all do things that are rebellious to the Lord. Jeremiah 17.9 The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, Realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men, and that Greek word is anthropos, which means men and women, will be lovers of self. Where self becomes more important, more elevated than any other thing. So are you saying, Rick, that all women who choose abortion are just selfish? What I'm saying is this. The so-called easier choice is often the most selfish choice. And it's the attitude that underlies abortion. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And I believe one another would involve unborn children. Regard every other living person as more important than yourselves. If that verse was adhered to, there would not be 2.5 million children aborted in America every year because they would be more important than the mother. Regard others as more important than yourself. Gang, that is the way of the cross. It is the way of the Christ. Now, I realize, and I don't know specifically, but I realize in a fellowship like this, this service, possibly next service, there may be a woman here who's had an abortion and it may be you and that may be something of your past and I want you to understand something but we'll have to wait a minute to get there so don't just wallow in guilt and miss the rest of what we're going to talk about this morning what about the first woman well she's a bit more virtuous you know for a harlot but at least she chooses number two the option of adoption the option of adoption. She does take, take the higher road. She chooses life. She's willing to give up her child, at least so the child can live. Oh my Lord, give her the living child and by no means kill him. Even if I can't be the mother, someone else can. And so this child needs to live. Give him to her. Then again, the Lord places a high value on children. Something that I fear we have lost in our society. Psalm 127 verse 3 says, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Now, that being said, we need to recognize this woman, by any and all standards of morality and righteousness and holiness, is still bankrupt. I mean, this is still a pretty sordid tale. We can give her honor that she wants the child to live, but she's still a prostitute, and this is the house the child would grow up in. Is that the best place? Again, it just cracks me up that both these women, the fact that they are prostitutes, is curiously left out of Sunday school curriculum. Not to mention the fact that, as I said before, their prostitution is most likely cult-related, 
which is both a sexual and a spiritual sin. And it's going in both directions. By the way, by the way, did you know the Bible connects the two? As much as we would like to disconnect sexual things and spiritual things, the Lord says, you really can't do that. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15, Paul says, Don't you know your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? That's the one body concept that is so clear throughout Scripture in marriage. For sure before that when you go back to Adam and Eve, that when Adam says, she's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and the two shall become one flesh, that word one is the same word that God uses for himself when he talks about his own oneness in the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4, where the Israelites would cry out, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Echad is the word in the Hebrew. And when it said that the two shall become one flesh, Echad, same word. There is an incredible oneness that happens when two people are joined together sexually and in a relationship and Paul writes, Do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. And sexuality and spirituality are not as separate as we might think. One impacts the other. But that's why this is such an odd story to include in the biblical narrative. Two harlots fighting over a child. So why choose this story. There had to be countless other times when Solomon made judgment. When the wisdom that God gave him came pouring out. There had to be. Numerous times when sitting on his throne, people would come to him for judgment and he would say things and do things and express things and the people would be in awe. This is the wisest man. In fact, we know the Queen of Sheba came and visited and was blown away by the wisdom of Solomon. And yet of all the possible examples of his wisdom, this is the one the Lord gives us. Why? Why the story of the two harlots and the child? I believe, number three, that we might see and understand the wisdom of grace. The wisdom of grace. And any of you ladies who have ever made a decision, even if you didn't understand at the time, to have an abortion in the past, please listen. If I was in Solomon's place, I honestly don't know if I would have given judgment in favor of either mom. Would you? I mean, think about this. If this was presented before you, the solution to me is obvious. You're both hookers. You're both unmarried. At least one of you is lying. Call CPS. We need to get Child Protective Services in here and get this baby out of that house. This is a bad place for the child to grow up. This is not the right place for this baby to be. Move the child into a better, safer, healthier environment. Because not only was abortion common in Solomon's day, adoption was also common in Solomon's day. It was an option that was often used. And with that choice, wise old King Rick might have decreed the following. Take the child from these two reprobates and give him to someone who will give him a better home. That's what needs to happen here. But with the wisdom that is from above, what does Solomon do? He shows grace. He shows mercy to the real mother. He shows justice balanced with mercy. Mercy, listen to me, mercy even for a common street whore. She doesn't deserve mercy. Neither do we.
He shows grace to a prostitute. Why is this story the example of King Solomon's wisdom? Because it rings true to the heart and the mind of Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus would have done. 1 Kings 10.23 tells us that King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And yet in Matthew 12.42, Jesus said, Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. You think Solomon was wise? You think Solomon was great? There's someone greater. In Jesus' day, he was scandalous concerning women. Not sensually, but compassionately. He treated women in a way nobody was treating women in that culture. Certainly no leader of Jewish faith, which elevated the man and and really lowered the woman. And yet along comes Jesus. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. John chapter 4 tells us another story, probably familiar to to you, where Jesus comes across a woman, a Samaritan woman, and has conversation and interaction with her. And it tells us in verse 3 that, interesting, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. He had to pass through Samaria. No, he didn't. To get from Judea up to the Galilee, he did not have to pass through Samaria. As a matter of fact, Samaria would be the wrong direction. And furthermore, no Jew in his right mind even went through Samaria. They had roads that went around Samaria because the Samaritans were half-Jews. And the full-blooded Jews had no respect for the Samaritans whatsoever. And yet the Bible tells us Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Why? Because he had a divine appointment. He went to Samaria because he needed to go there, not because it was on the map as the place through which he would have to pass to get to the Galilee. And so he meets this woman in John chapter 4. This Samaritan woman at the well at noon, she comes up, he's sitting there, the apostles have gone on into town to get something to eat. And he begins talking with her, and we discover in this story that she has been married and divorced five times. And now she's just living with the guy because she's completely given up on the institution of marriage. It hasn't worked out so well for her. So why even try? This is a woman at the point of her life who has given up on the hope of marital stability. And along comes Jesus and begins talking to her. And his conversation, the fact that he would even have any interaction with her is so stunning, it shocks her. Look down to verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus' interface with this woman is so appalling, it shocks his own disciples. Get down to verse 27. It says at this point, his disciples came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek or why do you speak with her? They were too embarrassed. Can you see him shuffling up with the food and all of a sudden they see Jesus there at the well with the woman? No one else is around and they're thinking, this is totally inappropriate. I mean, you should, there should be someone else there. Peter, why didn't you stay here with him? I don't know, I was hungry too. Well, shut up. I can't wait. Yeah, and they start arguing. And they're just look, but they won't talk to him about it. You know, they just come up with that uncomfortable kind of... You know? His dealings with this woman were so outrageous, it shocks an entire city. Verse 28. Verse 28 says, The woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? 
and they went out of the city and they were coming to him down in verse 30 it tells us or 39 sorry skip down to verse 39 many of that city many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified saying he told me all the things that I have done and so verse 40 says the Samaritans came to Jesus and they were asking him to stay with them and he stayed two more days and many more believed because of his word and they were saying to the woman it's no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the savior of the world now do you see why he had to go through Samaria I mean it wasn't even just the divine appointment with the one woman it was the, the appointment with this one woman that would spark the salvation of an entire city by the way you never know when one conversation is going to do that you never know when, when your interaction with one person in one obscure moment might end up saving an entire family or an entire city or an entire region you just tell them about Jesus and let him move let him do the rest I, I kind of wonder if some of the men folk quickly headed out of the city to go meet Jesus just to see what he knew about their associations with this woman <laughs> maybe they were just a little uncomfortable what did he tell you <laughs> told you everything about your life did he mention me I mean, she's been with at least five of them I'm guessing probably many more than that and so she is somewhat in the same category of our two women in 1 Kings chapter 3 you Bible students know this. The Samaritan woman is the first person we have on record to whom Jesus announced that he was the Messiah. Not just a woman, not just a non-Jew, but a non-Jewish woman, a Samaritan woman, a complete outcast. And it happens to be the one outcast of the entire city whose life is probably more messed up, or at least she thinks so, than anybody else. And Jesus says, oh yeah, I who speaks to you am he. I am Messiah verse 25 it tells us the woman said to him I know Messiah is coming he who is called Christ when that one comes he will declare all things to us and Jesus said to her I who speak to you am he Jesus had to go through Samaria compassion and mercy and grace demanded that he go through Samaria but have you ever noticed that in this story John leaves something out the conclusion, the resolution, if you will, of this story doesn't exist. Jesus doesn't condemn her. He doesn't speak judgment. He never even goes to and addresses the issue of sin. Oh, he raises it. Well, you've been married five times and now you're living with the guy. But he never says, sinner. He never points that out in her life. He never pulls down judgment on her. He never gets on her case about it. He didn't bring condemnation. He brought revelation. That should teach us something. Not condemnation, but revelation. For when we're walking in sin, blind to the ways of the Lord, the last thing we need is condemnation. That, by the way, is what the world expects to hear from us. Condemnation. What the world needs to hear from us is revelation. Which is why we say again and again, just tell them about Jesus. Keep telling them about Jesus again and again because the revelation of the person of Jesus Christ, the, the sin's going to come up. The sin's going to be dealt with. You can't help it. You're going to be convicted when the Spirit begins to speak to you and work in your life. It's unavoidable. So we don't have to worry about that. Isn't that great news? 
that you, you and me, we don't have to go out and judge people. We don't have to have the wisdom of Solomon to determine, should I talk to this person or not? Because they're awfully sinful. Should I show grace and mercy to them, or should I show judgment? Should I carry a placard that says, you know, anti-abortion, or should I go and start loving people? And caring about them. Jesus didn't bring condemnation. He brought revelation. Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 15. He said, Having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. What does he pray? Listen. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. That's the revelation that we need to be praying for. If you went through our study of the book of Revelation, remember, I have a pet peeve. I hate when people call it the revelations. Because it's not the revelations. It's not a plural. It's a singular. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Because the revelation of Jesus Christ is what we need. And when we pray for revelation and wisdom, what Paul says, he's praying, and by the way, he's praying this for people of faith. These are people who already believe. But Paul is saying, I pray for revelation of the knowledge of the person of Jesus Christ. I am praying, Paul says, for more Jesus for you. More Jesus. Haven't you had enough Jesus? Well, I'll tell you what, if you've been walking with the Lord any amount of time, I don't know of a Christian yet who says, you know, I've just heard too much about Jesus. Oh no, Rick's teaching another Jesus sermon. He's landing at Jesus once again. We're going to hear about Jesus again this morning. Isn't there something else in the Bible? No one does that. We love to hear more and to know more and to understand more of who Jesus is. Revelation. Because the revelation of Jesus Christ changes our hearts. It makes us like Him. And we need more revelation of Jesus that we might offer a greater revelation of grace. And listen to this. This is the wisdom of grace. 1 Corinthians 15.8, Paul said, speaking of Jesus' resurrection appearances to the other apostles, he said, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not even fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me did not prove vain. Listen, I labored even more than them, yet not I, but the grace of God in me. What was it that drove Paul on his three missionary journeys? What was it that caused him to give up his life in the most radical way possible for the sake of Jesus Christ? It was grace. It was the wisdom of grace. It was the fact that God met him on that road and said, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And Jesus changed his life by pouring grace into him. And the more grace Paul received, the more motivated he was to live for Jesus. He said in 1 Corinthians 15.8, Last of all, as to one untimely born, the word there in the Greek is ektroma, which means as aborted. Translated specifically, Paul says, last of all, like an aborted fetus, Jesus appeared to me also. That's how dead Paul was. Unlike unlike a baby that never even had the chance to live. That's where I was when Jesus found me. But so much grace came from the Lord into Paul 
that it changed them completely. That's the wisdom of grace. John 3.17, God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. That's why He came. Jesus said again and again, I'm not here as a judge. Now, He's going to come as a judge the second time. But right now, we live in the age of grace. We live in the church age, which is that time, not of judgment, but of grace. And we as Christians need to embrace that thought. We need to understand that we are not here to judge the world. We are here that the world might be saved through Him. We are here to offer grace and mercy. And let the Spirit convict, because He will. Our role is to love. And that's the wisdom of grace. The wisdom of Solomon as he stands here looking at these two women. He could have made a solid judgment, gotten the child out of there, and put the two of them into prison. But he has mercy on the mother. He shows her grace. And what about taking a stand for righteousness? What about fighting all the evils and the sin and the propagation of all this in our world and in our schools? We had a long conversation with Stephanie this last week about some things going on in the public schools. What do we do about this? How do we deal with these things? Should we all show up at the principal's office in mass with our Bibles and just start, you know, don't you get it? What do we do with this? 1 Corinthians 2.16, Paul says, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now this verse stands for me as one of the most outrageous verses in Scripture. We have the mind of Christ. Do you realize what this means for us? It means we can think the way Jesus thought. It means that we can see things the way Jesus saw things. That we have access to his wisdom by his spirit. How about we use it? Because the times that we get most in trouble as Christians in the world is when we are not thinking with the mind of Christ. We're thinking with the mind of the flesh. And we're responding and reacting, even righteously speaking. Leslie Kramer, I'm not going to tell the whole story, but she was driving home from school just the other day. Something had happened, and and you didn't talk to her about what it was, but it really upset her, and, and righteously so. She had every right to be upset about something that had gone on at the school. She is fuming about it. She's driving home and she's thinking, I'm going to turn around and go back and I'm going to talk to that principal. And she was just, and she said, but I didn't. I was just too angry. And I thought, that was the right choice. That's thinking with the mind of Christ. Because if she had gone charging back in there, it would have been a misrepresentation of the love and grace of God. Not that she wasn't right, she was. But gang, even in our righteousness, sometimes we need to pause and think, will this bring salvation to the person with whom I'm dealing? Is it judgment that leads to repentance? Or is it kindness that leads to repentance? Is it mercy? Is it grace? I'm saying, gang, with ourselves... Even within the church body, I think we can apply this, the standards of righteousness. We do need to hold each other accountable to the truths of God. As Peter said, judgment begins with the household of God. And so among us, as brothers and sisters, understanding that we have all given our lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, there are times where we need to call each other down on things, lovingly, graciously, but we need to say, hey, wait a minute. 
I think where you're heading here is a dangerous direction. Or I'm not sure that was the right choice. I think we have that right with each other within the body of Christ. And I think we certainly have that right in our own life to hold ourselves, to judge what we're doing, and hold ourselves to a high standard of righteousness. But in a godless world, I believe the Lord wants us to apply the wisdom of grace and do what Jesus did. If someone is not a believer in Jesus, love them. Don't judge them. No matter what it is that they're doing or involved in, Far too many mothers, daughters, and sisters feel as though their sin has caused such disfavor with the Lord that they don't have a chance. The reality is that people outside of Christ living in sin are already guilty enough. It's that guilt that charges forward and says, I don't want to hear this. I don't want to deal with it. Don't push that on me. It's only the Lord who has that loving way of tenderly reaching into a heart and and massaging and changing and and drawing forward and and helping us to realize as bad as our sin is it doesn't touch the depth of His love and His mercy and forgiveness now let me speak just for a moment to the ladies especially because there are many women in our society who feel like and men as well but who feel like past choices have affected them in such a way that they're just not good enough. There are a lot of Christian women who have made the choice to have abortions in the past and now sit on a weekly basis, though they are in church or involved with a fellowship, sit there in self-judgment and condemnation. And I wonder if Tamar ever felt that way. Or Rahab. I wonder if Bathsheba felt that way. Or even Ruth. Tamar seduced her father-in-law Judah. Her father-in-law. And had a child by him. This is Tamar's claim to fame. Rahab's claim to fame is she was a harlot in the city of Jericho who ended up becoming the mother of Boaz. Which is incredible. Married into Israel though she was at one point a common harlot like the two women in our story. Ruth was a Moabite woman, an outsider completely, who marries into Israel, becoming King David's great-grandmother. And I say, yeah, but Ruth was righteous and wonderful. Yeah, well, she came out of Moab, and Psalm 60, verse 8, says, Moab is my wash pot. Or, loosely translated, toilet. Moab is not one of God's favorite places, and yet Ruth comes out of Moab and ends up married into Israel, becoming great-grandmother to David, Bathsheba was David's wife by that scandalous affair. And she ends up becoming the mother of Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. And you Bible students know again why I list these women. It's because the Lord saw fit to list them, all four of them, in his own genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. These are the four women listed. Women weren't even normally listed in a genealogy back then. But these four are included. Why would he include these four women in his own genealogy? The same reason that we have the women in the story in 1 Kings chapter 3 included in the Bible. Because God is a God of grace. And grace is even woven into the fabric of Jesus' heritage. So ladies and gentlemen, if you feel like you're not good enough, guess what? You're not. But he is. And His love and His grace are sufficient for us. Rather than divide the child, 
rather than destroy the product of a sinful life, God would say to you and to me, how about this? How about instead of destroying the life of the baby, how about being born again? How about we turn this whole thing around? And let's save a life. Our King divided His own Son, Jesus, that we might be born again into a forgiven life by the wisdom of grace. This is the heart of the Father. And it's the life He's called us to live. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank You for bringing us back to grace. Father, I found myself in quite a bit of judgment over the last few weeks. Judgment of Solomon and his life. Judgment of the sin that's apparent there. Judgment of the lack of righteousness. And I thank you this morning that you saw fit to slow us down and remind us of your grace. And remind us that this is the point. Jesus, for all of us gathered together this morning, Lord, there, there are several here who need to be reminded how gracious you are. Who need to know that the mistakes and the sins and the failures of the past, no matter how bad they might seem, that your grace covers them. That you have a way of taking even our worst decisions and in Christ Jesus turning them around. And we thank you and we praise you for that. And if you're struggling with the sins of the past this morning, I, just, I want to pray specifically for you. That you would just let go. Father, pour your grace into the hearts of those sons and daughters of yours this morning who are hurting because of decisions they've made. Maybe, Father, because some of the things in this very story raise those old hackles of guilt... Jesus, would you gently wash it away by your love? And if this morning you're sitting here and you've never given your life to Jesus, we want you to have opportunity to do that. I invite you to pray in your heart after me to the Lord. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. And I need your grace. And I want your forgiveness. And so I give you my life and my heart. I confess Jesus Christ as Lord of my life. I believe that you raised him from the dead. That that the cross was, was the place where Jesus was divided that I might be made whole. And this morning, Father, I choose to be born again. I choose life. Lord Jesus, I pray that you bless that choice in every one of us. And teach us to walk in your grace and your mercy in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand up together. Worship team, come on back up.